coming in the last of our studies in Isaiah 53 at this time to consider the second verse of this well-known song in chapter 53. And the life of Roger Bannister is fascinating for all of us, I presume, especially that wonderful event when he broke the four-minute mile in Vancouver in 1954. He passed away in March of 2018, and what is fascinating is not just that incredible human achievement of breaking the four-minute mile, but of the life he lived after that, a life which for many of us is hidden, unknown, and little talked about, a life of humility. He never hit the headlines since that amazing day in 1954. But that hidden life of Bannister was not inactive or uneventful. He was not a one-hit wonder. He had an outstanding career as an eminent neurologist. He was also a master of Pembroke College and Oxford University. And so Sir Geoffrey Archer wrote of him that he wore his fame, his sporting prowess, and his academic distinction lightly, and that he was a man of immense modesty. The hidden years of Bannister were marked by humility, but they were also marked by great industry and outstanding achievement. As we come this evening to consider this wonderful passage in in the second verse of Isaiah chapter 53, something of that idea resonates with us as we think of these hidden, humbling years of our Savior. Here a calling in his obscurity, far greater than Roger Bannister's. He was called to be the servant of the Lord, to deal with the deepest needs of our souls. He had the most exalted calling ever given to any man. How would he carry himself? How would he behave in that role, in that calling? And the answer of this verse is, without standing, humility. Servant of the Lord, hidden in these years described in verse 2, were years of humbling and years of secrecy and years of which we know so little about, and yet they were years of development, of growth, of blessing for him. We come uh, this evening to to trace this this movement uh, uh, and this this incredible uh, development that we we have in in this second verse, moving through three stages in the the humiliation of, of Jesus, seeing his humility in his birth and in his upbringing and then into his public ministry as set out in this memorable second verse. Think first of all then of Jesus' humility in these years of obscurity in his birth. It's in the opening phrase here, he grew up before him like a young plant. The humility of Jesus was evident, or the humiliation of Jesus was evident in the lowly circumstances of his birth. The image used here in this second verse is botanical 
a young plant describing the beginning of the earthly life of Jesus. His appearance in this world, his birth, not likened to a cub, not likened to a chick, but to a plant in its beginning, in its start, in its infancy, just planted, just appearing, just growing. He grew up before him like a young plant. When we think of this verse, we're not to think of our daffodils or crocuses or snowdrops or heathers, which will soon appear in our gardens if we have them. Something stunning, something heartening, something beautiful. Rather, this term refers to an unattractive, small, vulnerable sucker springing up from a seemingly dead tree, fallen or cut down. The old tree had been judged by the gardener or the owner to have served its purpose and it was felled or a strong wind had blown the rotten tree over. The trunk had long been removed. However, in time, from the remaining roots in the ground or from the stump left in the ground, a sucker has sprung up. A young plant has appeared. The element of life, weak, forgotten and invisible, was still in the remnant of the fallen tree. And this is the idea that we have in this verse. It's not a new idea in the book of Isaiah. We've studied it before in chapter 11. It was a promise, a message of hope for the nation of Israel that would go into captivity and never fully recover from that captivity. The house of David, the the, the prophet Isaiah and the other prophets indicate, will be like the fallen tree. The kingdom of David, the royal line will come in to hard times. It will look dead, buried, gone. No Davidic king will rule in Jerusalem again. Rather, the holy city will be overrun, firstly by the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans. The promise of God given to David that his descendants will rule forever will nevertheless be fulfilled. And so from that fallen house of David, the Messiah will spring up, fulfilling the promise of God. He will grow up before him like a young plant. The royal one, through the line of Mary and Joseph, will not appear in a mighty form. He will not arrive like the sudden eruption of a volcano, but rather like a humble, gentle, quiet sucker on a fallen, forgotten, ignored and written off tree. Jesus would be born to poor parents, born in a manger, born outside of the inn when his nation were oppressed and humbled. He began his life just like a sucker, a shoot from the stump of a felled tree, quiet, humble, unnoticed. Our current and familiar term for this idea of a young plant is the phoenix rises. In Greek mythology, each phoenix lived for 500 years, they said, and only one phoenix lived at a time. And just before its time was up, the phoenix built a nest and set itself on fire. Then a new phoenix would rise from the ashes. And so in his birth, Jesus 
is rising from the ashes of the line of David. He grew up before him like a young plant. Maybe you're poor tonight. The lowly birth of Jesus here comforts you. This is the lowest level of society, the bottom class, the humblest status which Jesus adopts. The poorest cannot think that Jesus is above them, beyond them, does not understand them. In fact, to be of a noble line and poor is much humbler than to be of an ordinary line and poor. He understands you better than you realize. By becoming poor, he shows his love for the poor, his understanding for the poor. And this experience of Jesus challenges us all about our attitude to wealth. It teaches us that we can be poor and serve God. He was never rich in this world. He never owned a house or a field, yet he served God in its fullness. He sought the true, lasting, spiritual wealth and riches. And we can serve God with whatever we have or do not have. We do not need to wait till we have money or a better sofa or a newer car till we serve him. Here is Christ, a young plant, serving. I encourage all of you to mimic, to mimic the example of Christ and to choose a poor family to care for and to help. That's what he did. He chose to be in a poor family to help them, to provide for them, to influence them. What an example to us in the church to choose a poor family in the congregation on our elders' list in our community and focus on them to help them, provide for them, love them. The New Testament church struggled to care for the poor. The poor were neglected by the New Testament church as the book of James and 1 John indicates. They were ignored, treated as second class. But Christ chose a poor family to be born into. Let us choose a poor family to minister to. He focused for 30 years of his earthly life on this one family. He contributed to it financially, working as a carpenter. He raised the spiritual tone of the home and witnessed to the sons and daughters of this poor home. He poured effort, love and prayer into that home. Let us choose one poor family and help it practically, financially and spiritually. In his birth, he was humble. Secondly, in his upbringing, humility is evidenced. In the second phrase, and like a root out of dry ground, the second stage of his humiliation described here is in this phrase that, that we have just read. The expression moves us on from Bethlehem to the life of Jesus in Nazareth, where he lived 
after his return from Egypt. Nazareth is described here by the metaphor of parched ground, barren, arid, dry. A place where little can survive morally, spiritually, or socially. But Jesus did. And he thrived there. He continued to grow up, the text says. He grew up before him like a root out of dry ground. Even in that arid place, he prospered and progressed. It was there in the backwater of Nazareth, away from the bustling city of Jerusalem, that Jesus was prepared for his public ministry. He did not grow up in a university or in one of the rabbinic schools. He wasn't brought into the capital of Jerusalem or the royal palace with finest food and with finest clothes, but in the obscurity of Nazareth, like a root Out of dry ground, he grew up. John Mackay writes that the phrase indicates an undistinguished start in unpromising circumstances. His spiritual development was not stunted, hindered, or neglected. In the local synagogue of Nazareth, Jesus spent many hours learning the scriptures avidly reading and pondering those Old Testament scrolls, meditating and praying over them. He grew up before him like a root out of dry ground. Nazareth was a parched place on many levels. Politically, Roman soldiers were stationed nearby and ruled the region. Ethically, Nazareth had a bad reputation Religiously, the close proximity to Gentile regions brought a corrupting influence on their religion. So we have the question of Nathaniel in John chapter 1, don't we? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Yes, there can. He grew up before him like a root out of dry ground. And we get a glimpse A little insight into the ability, the interest, the devotion, the piety, the values, the priority of Jesus growing before God at the age of 12. He delighted in the worship of God in the temple in Luke chapter 2. He enjoyed the discussion with religious leaders about the scriptures. There were a few sharp theological and spiritual minds for him to interact with in Nazareth. Perhaps his mother was probably the most spiritually mature and biblically informed person in his life. Nonetheless, he continued to grow before God like a root out of dry ground in Nazareth. Anne Milton, former Minister of Education, promoted degree apprenticeships for A-star grade pupils. She urged the highly intelligent school leavers to abandon their intellectual snobbery of wanting an Oxbridge education and to choose a degree apprenticeship. She said, university gives you knowledge. It doesn't necessarily give you skills. For the young people, Jesus' training for ministry was degree apprenticeship style. 
He emerged from Nazareth with the skills to be an effective teacher of the Word of God. From the temptation to sin at every corner in Nazareth, from the challenges of home life in general and the specific challenges of living with unbelievers, from the responsibility of being the breadwinner in his home and the remoteness of the town which facilitated his meditation, study and prayer. Jesus chose the route, chose the route which would allow him to flourish spiritually. And when we choose a course of action, let us choose the course that will allow us to flourish spiritually. Al Martin has been challenging me about this He argues in his pastoral theology that we need physical exercise and we all agree with this. It's just the way that we are made and put together. He has chosen to buy his own treadmill. He runs on it in his house while he's reading a volume of John Owen. I've spoken about Sinclair Ferguson choosing to study at Aberdeen instead of St. Andrews, the home of golf, so that golf would not impact his spiritual growth. What a verse this is. Here is God. who could have plotted any course for his son's birth and upbringing. He plotted this course that would allow him to grow spiritually. Could Jesus have grown so well before God in their being at schools in Jerusalem? How would those Pharisees have taught him? What were those questions that they asked him at age 12? Would their hypocrisy and legalism, which dominated their life and teaching, have been a constant irritation to him? Was he already clashing with them in that encounter in Jerusalem? So we are to choose the route in which we will flourish spiritually. Everything is to be subservient to our spiritual development, our marriage partner, our job, our education. Jesus did not receive the praise of man for having letters after his name, but he received the praise of God. And for all of us, let us accept the plan that God has made for us. For the children God has planned, the family that you are in, planned the town where you are. Perhaps some adults wish you could do more for Jesus. Legitimate commitments are keeping you back from time you could spend serving him. An illness has restricted your church involvement and it frustrates you. We're not to regard these years as wasted years, but as years of preparation for ministry. Jesus' obscurity in the arid, barren, moral and spiritual desert of Nazareth was preparing him for his public ministry. Remember Moses, 40 years in the desert. Remember David, seven years of being hunted by Saul. Years of preparing and growth. For parents, let us trust God to care for our young people in school, in university, in work. Often those places are arid places. 
There's swearing, there's marital unfaithfulness, there's lies, there's backstabbing all around them. But they can still grow before God as this prophecy indicates the case of Joseph and of Daniel proves. Jesus told his disciples, facing opposition, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And thirdly, in his public ministry, the end of the verse reads, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. The third stage of the humility of Jesus is the way that he embarked on his public ministry. The words of John the Baptist in John 1 repeated twice over. So aghast was John, so impressed, so humbled, so amazed was John. Twice over, John says in John 1, when Jesus comes to him to be baptized, I myself did not know him. There was no glow around him, no halo on his head, no retinue, no cavalcades, nothing outwardly impressive. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him, no physical impressiveness, no form or beauty that would turn heads. One current requirement for successful leaders is physical beauty. The business insider, after careful research, has found that attractive people are usually hired sooner, get promotions more quickly, and are paid more than less attractive co-workers. Someone who has an appearance that will turn heads, someone who is tall, dark, and handsome, gets on better in the business world, it seems. This point by the prophet is interesting. That despite the absolute perfection of Christ's soul, Jesus had no outstanding natural or artificial beauty. He was not ugly. He did not draw attention to himself by overly big ears or a big nose. He was ordinary. He was grey. He was common in his physical appearance. Nothing in his physical appearance would distract from his work as the servant of God, or from the glory that he sought to bring to God. It wasn't about him. It was all about us, and about his mission, and about his love, and about glorifying God. He had no form or majesty, no beauty, that we should desire him. These terms have great significance in the Bible, because these terms are used of other people who were beautiful, who did turn heads. Rachel, for example, Genesis 29 verse 17 is described as beautiful in form and appearance. And we understand why Jacob worked for her for 14 years. Joseph is described in Genesis 39 verse 6 as handsome in form and appearance. David is described in 1 Samuel 16 12 as beautiful and handsome. The Bible notes their appearance, but it also notes the appearance of Jesus. No form or beauty that we should desire him. No physical appeal 
no striking bearing, and no royal appearance. See the phrase, no form or majesty. Albert Barn writes, he had no robes of royalty, no diadems sparkling on his brow, no splendid retinue, no gorgeous array. He comes to the Baptist, John the Baptist, and asks to be baptized by him, just like the rest of the people. And John detects nothing different in him. This is the fullest description we have of Jesus' physical appearance in the Bible. The gospel writers do not mention the color of his eyes or hair or his height or weight or his skin color. They focus, as he did, on his work. Physical appearance and beauty is such a big thing in our society. In the UK, men are currently spending more than women on beauty products Men are spending nearly three and a half thousand while women spend about three grand on beauty products. Beauty is everything to some people. And these verses challenge all types. Those with little natural beauty not to be searching after that beauty that fades and diminishes a few tweaks here and there for most of us is enough. But we are to pursue the inner beauty, the spiritual beauty of the heart. Those with striking looks are to remember that the inner beauty is far more important. Samuel forgot this when he went to anoint the new king, didn't he? He looked on Eliab and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And God said to him, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The two words in our verse are critical. Before him. It is what God sees and God delights in that matters most. There's a wonderful moment in William Carey's life when he was traveling by ship out to India when he took his wig and he threw it into the sea. He thought that this, his physical appearance was important and would attract more listeners, but no one on the ship was interested in his preaching or attending the gospel, and it, it just transformed him. That his trust would be in God, and he would pursue spiritual beauty and set his heart on outward beauty. And to us in a congregation, it doesn't matter if you're bald, if you're gray. If your hair is white, if your jowls are fat, or your cheeks are attractive, if your eyes are bushy or well manicured, or concern for ourselves and others, it's the development of the fruits of the Spirit. And so in this thanksgiving service, in our communion Sabbath, we praise God for his Son. We praise him for his deity, God of God, light of light, begotten, not created. We praise him for his exaltation, seated at the right hand of God with that name above every name. We thank him for his true humanity, bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. And we praise him for his humility in his birth, in his upbringing, 
in his public ministry. And as we praise him, and as we ponder him, we will become like him. We will be indifferent to our humble beginnings. We will seek to grow in our spiritual life, however arid our family, school class, our work colleagues might be. We will value spiritual beauty above all else.